take your Bibles as I take a seat at the table. Last week we began a series here talking about the table called the church. If you were here, you remember I said there's four legs that make this a stable table. One of those legs is evangelism. These are the things that we have to be about. These are the the pillars. These are the priorities, if you will, of the church. Evangelizing the lost. Of course, it's Mission Sunday, and and we understand that that's one of the the priorities of the kingdom of God, uh, that we always go after the least and the lost that we go after those that don't know Christ. We have one leg that holds up the table called evangelism. Another leg on the table is worship. And last week we talked about how what we do on a Sunday together, though we're blessed by it and though we receive from it, and I certainly pray and hope you'll receive from this message, we understand that the worship of God is about God, not the worshiper. And so one of the things that we come to do as the people of God is we come and we worship the Lord. When we come to this table called the church, we worship God. The third thing, the third leg was discipleship. And we disciple believers. Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples. That's disciplined learners. That's followers of Christ. There is this, uh, this process of sanctification that happens in the life of a true believer. Now, you're not saved by your works that you do, but your works are evidence of your salvation. In fact, James said, you show me faith without works, and I'll tell you, that's dead faith. Faith must be accompanied by actions. And what that just means for us is that once we come into grace, that we come in by grace that is free, by grace that is undeserved and unmerited. Once we're in, the, the God of heaven who saved us begins to work in our hearts. Something changes from the inside and it begins to manifest in the outside. We begin to act and walk and talk more like Jesus. And that doesn't mean that our standard is perfection, but our standard is direction. Amen? We should be walking in the direction of the cross. And so that's an important leg of the church. And and the fourth leg is to show compassion. And I just mentioned that with our uh, Project Toy Box that we're doing and and the outreach that we did a couple of weeks ago here for our community. Things that are just demonstrations of the love of Christ. Jesus said, even if you just offer a cup of cold water in my name, you're doing good for the kingdom of God. He's called us to love people and to show compassion. Compassion. And we said this last week, what is true of the church and these four legs that make this a stable table has to first be true of the members of the church. It has to be the heart of your life, that you're committed to evangelizing the lost, worshiping God, making disciples and showing compassion, embodying the the nature and the character of God to those around you. Today I want to talk to you about a different table. So you have to take your mind off the church now. And today I want to talk to you about the table at your house. And the table at my house. I want us to consider for just a, a few minutes the table in your own home. Now, some people, they have a, a dining room and it's off limits and the kids know not to go in there and it always looks immaculate and it always looks great. And, uh, and if that's your house, that's awesome. I don't have that room in my house. Uh, my dining room table is, uh, it's a utility table. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. I mean, it's, it's the place where stuff gets dropped off uh, every day. It's the homework table. It's the craft table. It's the board game table. Sometimes we have to rediscover it before it can become the dining room table again. 
In fact, my wife and I, when we were moving a couple of years ago, we talked about getting a new table because ours is dinged up and scratched up. And uh, the more we thought about our life and, and our three girls and just where we're at, we were like, you know what? This is a bad idea because we know we will ruin that table. Let's just keep the one that we've got. It serves its purpose. You know, we use it for everything. We'll just keep this table and, and maybe, you know, when our kids get a little older and, and you know, uh, we, we can take care of a, a better table, we'll get a better table. But we use that table for everything in our house. This morning, I want to talk to you about not the physical table in your home, but what happens and who gathers around the table in your home. I was thinking, we're going to go to Ephesians chapter one in just, or chapter 5 in just a moment, but I was thinking about a story in 1 Samuel chapter 1. And it's the story of young Samuel. And many of you know the story that uh, his mother, Hannah, dedicated him to the Lord. Even as a child, once he was weaned, she took him to the house of the Lord, to the uh, priest Eli, and said, I- I've dedicated him to the Lord for all the days of his life. And the Bible says that Samuel was literally raised in the house of God. He was raised in God's house. Even as a little boy, he had his little priestly garments, his little uh, ephod that he wore, and and he was raised in God's house. And many of you that, that are familiar with the, the word of God, you know that there is two books with his namesake, First and Second Samuel. He's the prominent character there. He not only was raised in the house of God, but he grew up to become uh, the, the leader of the nation, the spiritual leader. He was the one to anoint the first king uh, of the nation of Israel, King Saul. And then he was the one to anoint David after him. An incredible man of God. But as I was looking at this story, his story, and how it begins in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and chapter 2. In verse 1 through 10, there's this incredible song of praise that takes place in chapter 2. My Bible uh, gives it the heading, Hannah's Prayer. This is Samuel's mom. She prays this incredible prayer. And we won't take... Uh, the time to read the prayer, but I just want you to look at verse 11. Verse 11 in 1 Samuel 2, it says this. It says, Then Elkanah, that was her husband, went home to Ramah, but the boy ministered before the Lord under Eli the priest. So here's this mother who committed her heart to the Lord, said, God, if you'll give me a son, I'll give him back to you all the days of his life. And then we see her worshiping, and not just worshiping, but bring, bringing her son to worship God there. In fact, her song is the first uh, reference that we have of the Messiah in name. She mentions it in this song. And the Bible, be, the, this little chapter begins with the words in verse 28 of chapter 1 saying, And he, Samuel, worshiped the Lord there. The little boy worshiped God there. And then his mom sings this incredible song unto the Lord as she talks about the coming Lord. And then at the end of her song there in verse 11 again it says, But the boy ministered before the Lord under the priest. And as I was just meditating on that, just this thought came to my mind. And this is just kind of by way of introduction. I want to speak to moms and dads and heads of households primarily today. That what you do in moderation, your kids will do in excess. That it's so critical that you understand that your relationship with God is not just about your relationship with God. If you have the privilege to be a mom or a dad, if you have the privilege to lead other people, if you're a person of significant influence 
And I say it that way because uh, in our day and age, I know there's many of you, maybe you're, you're not a mom or dad, but you spend hours uh, every day with, with children. Maybe it's your grandchildren, nieces, nephews, what have you. I want you to understand that what we do in moderation, our children will do in excess. And that can be a great blessing if our hearts are committed to the Lord. It can also be a pathway to heartache as our kids grow up. And the things that we dabbled in, the compromises, the little insignificant things that we thought weren't a big deal in our relationship with God, now become a crippling vice in their life. We see it time and time and again. The things that we do in moderation, our kids will do in excess. Well, today, I want us to turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Last week, we ended with a couple challenging questions. I asked you at the very end of the service, I said, what would everyone in the... What would it be like if everyone in the church was as committed as you are? You remember that? I said, what would it be like if everybody in the church uh, gave as faithfully as you give? What would it be like if everyone in the church worshipped to the same degree in which you worship God? No more or no less. What, What would it be like? Well, I would say again today that you do have influence in this house. But your influence here, and even my influence here, pales in comparison to the influence that God has given you in your home. The influence that God has given you at this table of our home. And this morning, I want you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. And I want to look at some scriptures that deal with the table in our house. Chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians Uh, are all about doctrine. It's all about what God has done, who Christ is, the work that he's done for us. But chapters 4, 5, and 6 are about Christian duty. It's about the things that he's called us to do. And when you get to chapter 5, specifically verse 21, and in in through chapter 6, it's explicit instructions for the Christian home. It's instructions by the Apostle Paul for us how to live, how to act, how to interact with one another. And as I was studying for this table series, I thought it was interesting that this portion of Scripture throughout history has been known as the Hustafel. Now, that's a German word, so I don't don't expect that you would know that word, Hustafel. But this portion of Scripture, beginning in Ephesians chapter 5 through 6, 9, is called the Hustafel. Martin Luther was credited with giving it that name over 500 years ago. Let me tell you what the word means. It means house table. This is the hostafel today. This is the house table. The house table was a code of social behavior. It was the standard. It was the, it was the measure. It was the table to say this is how we should conduct ourselves with one another. So I want us to look for a few moments today at the hostafel in the word of God and let the Lord speak to our hearts about our home. Look with me in verse 21. Chapter 5 of Ephesians. It says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife. As Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, 
so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now, I want to tell you this morning, these verses that we're going to look at are very important for the Christian home. But I don't want you to take these words outside of the context of who they were written to. Let me be more specific. These words that we're reading are very important for the way that God has planned for husbands and wives to relate to one another in the Christian home. Now, if we don't study and understand these words, they can be abused. They can be misused. And to be quite honestly, they have been. In fact, when I read that second verse to you, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands, some of you almost sighed right there. Like, oh man. Because you've heard these verses abused and misused. And I don't know what thought comes to your mind right away when you hear that, but you're going, really? I've heard people say that, but I didn't know it was actually in there until you just read it. Really? It says that? It says that. And we're going to talk about it because this is the hostafel. This is God's code of social behavior at the house table. Look at it with me. Verse 22 again. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Now guys, listen. If, if, you, if I read that verse and like you puffed your chest out and, and, and your ego swelled, you don't understand this scripture. Okay? Just let me tell you, you don't understand this scripture. Now ladies, if, if I read that verse and, and you recoiled, and you wanted to close the book and, and, and head for the back door. You don't understand this verse either. So I want to give some clarity to what the Lord is saying right here. And as I said a moment ago, you have to keep it in context. So what we have to do is we have to back up a little bit to the previous verses. Look at it with me. Verse, let's go back to verse 18. Because we don't see in our Bible that's been translated and, and, uh, and been, there, there's been you know, English grammar applied to it so that we can understand it. So that it makes sense to us. And though the, the translation is still accurate. One of the things that we don't get reading our translation. Is the fact that verse 18 through verse 21. In the Greek language. The original language. Is all one sentence. It's all one long sentence. So you can't just jump in and say. Wives submit yourselves to your husbands. You have to understand what he is saying. And when you back up and you look at verse 18. Through 21, one long sentence, he says this. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. All one really long statement. He says, you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And when you're full of the Spirit, you're going to sing. Your heart's going to be full of praise. You're going to encourage one another with songs and hymns and spiritual songs. When you're full of the Spirit, you're going to give thanks to God in all circumstances. And when you're full of the Spirit, you're going to respond in love to each other. You're going to submit to one another. Out of reverence for Christ. That's what he's saying to us when we, when we look at the context of these verses. So if we're going to understand the, the hostafel. If we're going to understand God's standard for conduct in the home. Then we have to understand that God's intention is first and foremost. That everybody that comes and sits at the table. Husband, wife, children. That they come 
filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled with the Spirit of God. That's God's plan. This doesn't work without that part. If you just skip ahead, I, mean, I dare you to try it. Go to the office this week and just see how much it encourages people when you quote Ephesians 5.22 to your co-workers. Well, I was just so blessed. You know, the Bible says, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. That's archaic. What? What are you talking about? You believe that stuff in this day and age? I, I don't have to submit to anybody. Right? I don't know. You wouldn't say that. I'm just speaking for your nasty coworker. That, that word doesn't bless anybody unless they're sitting at the table filled with the Spirit of God. And so we have to understand the context of what he's saying here. That this is for people who are filled with the Spirit. Everyone at the table. He said, now what, is that, what does that look like when we're filled with the Holy Spirit? Just turn a couple pages to the right. Hold your spot there, but go with me to Philippians chapter 2. This is, this is what it looks like when everybody is filled with the Spirit of God at the table. Here's our ultimate example, Jesus. It says in Philippians 2 verse 5, In your relationship with one another... Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. So what does it look like to be filled with the Spirit at this table? It means I don't take the position that I have in the house and use it to my advantage. Jesus was equal with God, and he didn't use his position to his advantage. Rather, verse 7 says, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance as a man, what did he do? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit and to sit at the family table. We don't take our position and leverage it. No, we consider it Nothing. We take on the form of a servant. So now that we know what it looks like to live uh, with a servant heart and what submission looks like, looking at Jesus, the one who submitted himself even unto death. So the Bible says at any moment on the cross, he could have called down 10,000 angels. He could have been delivered from that suffering. Yet he didn't. He humbled himself, becoming a servant even to the point of death. So we have this passage now that we're going we're gonna to jump into a little bit. Verse 22 of Ephesians 5. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. This passage is about a Christian wife and a Christian husband. This is a, a passage about the relational dynamics that happen at the table of a Christian family. This, this verse says nothing about the relational dynamics in the workplace. It says nothing about the relational dynamics in politics or at, in the marketplace. This is talking about a husband and a wife who are full of the Spirit of God, who are working together in the home. We have to understand that because the, the cultural perception of marriage is, is pitiful. It's pitiful, and if we take our cues from the culture, then we're going to fall far short of the standard and the potential glory that God has for us when we honestly evaluate what His Word says to us. He's trying to teach us about 
Christian couple. It's like the, the seven-year-old girl who went and saw the movie Cinderella. And she was telling her teacher all about it. And her teacher was trying to impress the little girl. And so she said, oh, I know what happens at the end. Cinderella and the prince, they live happily ever after. The little girl said, no, that's not right. They got married. That's the perception sometimes of the culture. That marriage is this ball and chain. That the fun's over. It's time to grow up. It's time to be responsible. It's important that we go back to God's word. It's important that we look at the house table to gain a right perspective. Let me tell you what it doesn't mean. This doesn't mean that wives are supposed to treat their husbands as if they are the Lord. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) As if they are the savior of the world. But it does mean that wives are in submission to her husband. Her submission is a service to the Lord. You don't serve your husband as if he is the Lord, but your service to your husband is unto the Lord. I'm going to keep moving because some of y'all are getting nervous. Look at verse 23. Y'all are like, get me out of here before he says something I'm going to have to undo all week. Verse 23, for the husband is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior, Jesus the Savior. The husband is the head, it says, of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. Now, there's been some people that have tried to do some uh, exegetical calisthenics with the, the scriptures. They've tried to kind of get around this, you know, because it doesn't sit well with the culture. And so what they've tried to say is that the word head, that is translated head, the word is kephel, is actually not uh, headship, as in like authority, as in like CEO or president of a university. No, what they, what they meant is that head just meant the source. It meant the source, you know, woman flows from man, he's the source of life and, and all of that, and that's what it meant. But a doctor by the name of Wade, Wayne Grudem did a careful study of that word, kephel, that we have as head. It's translated in 2,336 instances from classical Greek literature and from all of the biblical and extra-biblical historical writers, he says this, not one instance is there where it is discovered in which kephel had the meaning of source of origin. What it means is head. It means that in a biblical marriage, There is a hierarchy. F.F. Bruce said it this way. He said, in the order of creation, the place of the wife comes next after her husband. But hear me. This does not suggest in any way that the wife is either naturally or spiritually inferior to her husband. And, And that's where we typically go. Because we're kind of a next-in-line mentality. A one-up, you know, climb the ladder, who's the best. We're so competitively driven that anytime we say anything that indicates order, we start thinking in terms of greater than or less than. There's nothing in the Word of God that communicates that a woman of God is any less gifted, any less called, any less capable. In fact, the Bible says in in Genesis chapter 1 that God created them 
in his very image, he created them, male and female. So man is no more a reflection of the image of God than woman is. So there's nothing in the word of God here that communicates that a woman is any less or inferior spiritually or physically than a human, uh, than a man in the natural sense or in the spiritual sense. And there's a great example of this when we look at the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever considered there's a hierarchy with the Trinity? Jesus is fully God. He's fully God. The fullness of God in bodily form, Colossians says. He is fully in every which way God. He's God. Jesus is God. We believe that. It's a fundamental truth. But yet Jesus is submitted to God. He said, I only do the things the Father tells me to do. He's fully submitted to God, and yet he is fully God. And so we can say it this way. Equality and submissiveness can coexist. In human relationships. Equality. Absolutely. And submissiveness. Can coexist. In human relationships. It's not one or the other. It's not. Well I'm I'm equal. I'm everything you are. Or. You know you you just do what I say. And and I'm the, the ruler of this house. And I'll have my way. No no. It's equality. And it's. Submissiveness. They coexist. So, quit picking on the ladies for a minute. What does headship call a husband to be? If that's our job, if that's the responsibility, and it's a high one. And the Bible says that the husband is the head of the house. He is the head of his wife, just as Christ is the head of the church. What does that tell us? I'll tell you what it means for men. It means that we are to be servant leaders. Servant leaders. Look at verse 23. It says, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. So, husband is the head, as Christ is the head of the church. What kind of head of the church did he say Jesus was? He said he's the Savior. He's the Savior. Now, it doesn't say this. It doesn't say, uh, husband, you're the head of the church, as Christ is the, the leader. Of the church, or as Christ is the authority of the church. It doesn't say that we're the head of the household, just as uh, Jesus is even the teacher. Although all those things are true about Jesus, Paul was very intentional when he said, You're the head of the household, as Christ was the Savior of the church. We don't fully reflect Jesus, but in one of the ways that we do in our home is in this Savior capacity. Now, what does that mean? Can you save your family? No, certainly not in a spiritual sense. What it means is a willingness to lay down your life. That's the call to headship. A willingness to lay down your life. Jesus became the savior of the church. He said, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down willingly. So husbands, we're to lead as servant leaders in our home. With love that says this, I- I'm willing to die for you. That's what it says, I'm willing to die for you. And let me just say that headship in the house has limits. It's not, it's not just, you know, carte blanche rule. The head of the house can't command, uh, can't command his wife to do something that is forbidden by God. Can't, can't command him to do something that God forbids or that, that God commands that you shouldn't do. 
There's limitations. We don't walk outside of the authority that God has given us. But we're to lead as a savior of the church. We're to lead with an attitude that says, I'd lay down my life for you. Look at the next verse. 24 says this. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands in everything. Now, as I mentioned ago, the Bible, the Bible is really clear that there's no, there's no spiritual inequality. There's no one, you know, it's not you know, men first and women second or any of that garbage. The Bible communicates that we're all created in the image of God. The Bible says this in Galatians chapter 3. It says that in Christ there's no Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free. In other words, in Christ, we're all the same. And so when it comes to our identity in Christ, none of us are before the others. But the, the hostafel in Ephesians, this, this table, it presents men and women in ordered equality. We're equal, but there's order. There is a, a hierarchy where there's no superiority or inferiority. There's just order. There's a plan. John Howard Yoder said it like this. He said, equality is of worth is not equality of role. Let me say that again. Equality of worth is not equality of role. So just because you're both equally worthy, and we certainly are, it doesn't mean we have the same roles. It doesn't mean we have the same responsibility in the home. When the church submits to Christ, it thrives. It works. In fact, it doesn't work any other way. When we, as the people of God, submit to Jesus as the Lord, we don't get off on our own program, we don't get off on our own idea, or our own, you know, things about how this can go. No, when we say Jesus is the Lord, He's building His church, our responsibility is to to just use His plan, to do what He says to do, to follow Him. When we do that, the church thrives. We're not restricted in our gifts. We're not limited in our abilities. When we follow Jesus, it's not like we're sacrificing uh, a better life or a better opportunity. In fact, Jesus said, I came that you may have life to the fullest. The best life you can have, the best existence the church can have is to be fully submitted to Jesus Christ as the head of the church. And that's the way it should be in a home. If you've got a godly husband who is the head of the household, that wife should never feel limited in her ability to pursue her dreams. That wife should never feel limited in her potential, in exercising her gifting and her abilities, should never feel uh, like she's missing out on what could have been because of the limitations or the restrictions. No, just like the church thrives under the headship of Jesus, when a home is set up right, a wife thrives under the leadership, the godly servant leadership of her husband. So how are men supposed to treat this submissive woman that sits across the table from them if she gets her part right? The Bible's very clear here in this portion of Scripture how we're supposed to treat them. Here's what it looks like, guys. It's called sacrificial love. Sacrificial love. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That, that's what sacrificial love looks like. 
love that says, I'm willing to die. You can, you can be the king of your house. Just be a servant king. Be a king that's willing to lay his life down for his family. A sacrificial love is a love that's willing to die. Secondly, a sacrificial love is one that's willing to pray for your wife. That's what sacrificial love is. To pray for your bride the way that Jesus prays for the church. I said it earlier when we were praying that Jesus right now sits at the right hand of God ever to make intercession for us. You say, what is Jesus doing today? He's praying for you. He loves you so much. He longs to be with his spotless bride. He's interceding for you in this moment. And that's the responsibility of headship. That's our responsibility as men of God in our home. To pray for our wives. To pray for our children. That we bring them continually before the Lord. Let let that just challenge you for a minute. That it's sin. If you are not walking in your responsibility... As the head of your household, you ought to be praying for your family. That's what sacrificial love does. A third thing that sacrificial love does is this. It's attentive to her needs. Sacrificial love is attentive to your wife's needs. Just the way that Jesus is attentive to our needs. He cares for us. Over and over again, we have promises in the Word of God that He he cares for us. He's not just building an army. He's not just trying to rally us for his cause. No, he loves us. He's tender. He's compassionate. He knows our every need. He said, you can bring all your cares and cast them upon me. Why? Because I care for you. Because I'm genuinely concerned about your life. That's what headship does. Headship says, I'm attentive to her needs. That means I I celebrate her presence. Not just tolerate her presence. There was a story told years ago of a farmer and his wife out in the Midwest. And they were laying in bed one night. The storm was raging. And all of a sudden the funnel cloud of a tornado came over the house. And and lifted the roof right off the house. And lifted the bed while they were still laying in the bed. And the farmer's wife is there and she's crying. And he said, now's not the time for crying. And she says, I can't help it. I'm so happy. This is the first time we've been out together in 20 years. (laughs) That's not good headship, guys. Sacrificial love is attentive to her needs. It's not someone you tolerate. It's someone that feels celebrated. And I'm not just talking about Mother's Day where we're guilted to make up for our lack of attentiveness throughout the rest of the year. Not just talking about your anniversary. Talking about headship. The Bible says this, Hebrews 12, 2. It says, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Think about that. I don't know what kind of burden you've had to carry, but it certainly pales in comparison For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. You know what the joy was that was set before him? You. You were. 
He didn't come all the way down from heaven's glory to walk this earth just so he could go back to heaven's glory. He came down to make a way so that when he got back, we could be there with him. You are the joy set before him. And he wanted so much to have you with him and the Father in heaven that he endured the cross. That's headship. He put us first in the greatest sense that we could ever imagine. The Bible says this about a wife of noble character. Proverbs 31, verse 10. It says, a wife of noble character, who can find? She is worth far more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. She's worth far more than rubies. And her husband lacks nothing. That's that's a husband that's attentive to her. That's a husband that esteems his wife. His wife's not keeping him from all the things he'd rather do. She's worth far more than rubies. And I lack nothing. It says nothing about financial gain. It says nothing about being wealthy or having status. No, the reason I lack nothing is because I'm satisfied. It's a, a parallel to the way that we look at our relationship with Jesus. That he is our all in all. That he is all sufficient. When we come to a place with Jesus where we say, you know what? When I have him, I have everything. I have lack of nothing. And, and this husband can say, I lack nothing. Why? Because I have her. She's worth more than, than rubies. I have full confidence in her. Sacrificial love is, is attentive to her. And, and fourthly, sacrificial love is faithfully devoted to her. It's devoted to her. Aren't you glad we serve a God that is faithful to us? The Bible says this, even when we are unfaithful still, he is faithful. That's his character. That's his nature. God is a faithful, faithful God. And if there's one thing that every Christian wife should be absolutely confident in with unwavering certainty, it's the faithfulness of her husband. Hear me, guys. I'm talking about any shadow of a doubt. This is the one thing above anything else that she ought to have absolute certainty in your marital fidelity. He's he's faithful. He's lazy sometimes, but he's faithful. At least I know he ain't going anywhere. You know, he forgot our anniversary, but he's faithful. He's mine. And I'm his. I am my beloved and he is mine. And I know that. I know that with absolute confidence. Guys, that's headship. That as you sit at the table in your home, everyone at that table looks at you and they know he's for me. His eyes are not wandering. He's not looking somewhere else. He's not looking for an exit. He's here. He's in this thing. He is faithfully, fully devoted to me. This is not a bargain that we got ourselves into. It's not a bargain that we've made. Oftentimes with, with couples, I'll, I'll share this analogy. I'll just mention it to you quickly. That there is a, a great distance of contrast between a marriage covenant and a contract. I purchased a car this last week, and uh, so I was reminded of what contract is all about. 
You read all the stuff, all the things that they agree to, all the things that you agree to. You get through all that stuff and you get to the back of the contract and you sign your name on the very back. And you say, okay, all these things that I read, these are conditions. We are contractually bound to one another based on these conditions. Now, if you don't come through on the conditions, you've broken the contract. If I don't come through, I've broken the contract. But because they're all here and and the ink is dried on the page, I'll sign the back of it. That's contract. Covenant signs the first page. Covenant signs the top of the stack and says, I ain't got no idea what's in there. For better, for worse, sickness, health. To love and to cherish, to have and to hold, till death do us part. I don't know what's coming, but I'm signing the top. I'm not going to read through and say, I'll do this if you'll do that. This is covenant. This is headship, guys. That they know that we are faithfully and fully devoted to them. Look quickly, quickly with me at verse 26. It says, to make her holy cleansing her with, by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. Can I just tell you guys what it looks like for us to, to have headship? It's not just sacrificial love, but it's also sanctifying love. This is an incredible picture of what it looks like to love to love your wife the way Christ loved the church. How, how, did he, how did he love the church? He said he, he made her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water, presenting her to himself as a radiant church. As a radiant church, he loves her completely and fully. This is the doctrine of justification. Justification says this, that God sees me just as if I had never sinned. That's what justification means. That God sees me as if I've never done anything wrong. And what this is saying is that in a marriage, you ought to apply the the doctrine of justification towards your spouse. That you see them as spotless and radiant. That you're not fault finding, that you're not reminding them of all the things they did wrong last time. You know, you, you, you hold on to those things so that they can be ammunition for the next argument. No, justification says, I don't even remember that. The same way that God cast your sins into the sea of forgetfulness you don't hold now we don't have the privilege that he has of being able to forget our sins but we have to push back against an entitlement attitude against an attitude of resentment against an attitude that says me first and we have to extend justification and justification looks at your spouse and sees them as blameless perfect spotless holy Oh, you know they're not holy. You know they're not perfect. But God knows that about you too. But this morning as you were worshiping him, he didn't slam the door on you. He didn't say, what makes you think you can come into my presence? I'm a holy God. I saw what you did this week. I saw what you said this week. I know what you were thinking about. You don't think I heard the argument in the car on the way to church this morning? Who are you to lift up your hands and and think you can come into my presence? No, here's what he did. He looked at you and he saw you as a spotless bride. He said, you're beautiful. You're holy. You're radiant. I love you. I want to be with you. 
And maybe you were going, yeah, but I, I don't feel like I can come because I, you know, no, forget about that. I'm not seeing that. What is he doing? He's justifying us. And that's what we're called to do. Not just sacrificially love, but to love sanctifyingly. To, to look at our spouse and love them the way that Christ loves the church. To say, I don't, I, don't, I don't choose to see all that. I don't choose to fault find. There's one more thing it says. Look at it with me. Verse 28. This is the call to headship. In this same way, husbands, you ought to love your wives as their own bodies. Love your wives as your own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed it and they care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So, guys, we've got to love with sacrificial love. We've got to love with sanctifying love. And then here in verse 28 through 30, he says we've got to love with self-love. You've got to love her the way you love yourself. That's what he's saying. Now, we don't usually promote narcissism. But in this case, the Bible says you should love yourself. And you should love your wife the same way you love yourself. What in the world does that mean? Well, I can tell you, when you come home after a long day, you're very aware of your emotions. You're very aware of whether you had a good day or a bad day, whether you feel like talking or don't feel like talking, whether you feel like doing any chores or not. We're aware. We love ourselves, even those of us that don't think we do. We don't make ourselves skip meals. We take care of ourselves. We're tired. We rest care for ourselves we're attentive of our own needs and the bible says you ought to love your wife that way it demands that i try to be sensitive to her moods it pushes me out of the place of just just kind of saying you know what i just don't i just don't feel like being nice i had people chewing me out all day and i don't feel like being nice and since i don't feel like being nice i'm not going to be nice this is my house my remote i'm just going to sit here i'm going to consider myself i'm going to love me for a while That's not what headship does, though. Headship loves with self-love. You know what? She's probably had a bad day, too. It's been a crazy day. Kids have been screaming. Maybe she had a long day at work, and she just got home. I just got home. Why do I assume that my job and my day was a harder day than her day? It's considering her, her moods. Her emotions, her nonverbal communication. You know, chivalry is a lost art in our day. You don't see it too much, but it's necessary in a marriage. It really is. Self-love is, is open, opening the door. Not, not over-talking your spouse, giving them room to, to talk. To, I mean, you know you want to be heard, but it's letting, letting them be heard. It's loving them the way you love yourself, giving them the five-star treatment that you want. So I want to challenge you today. Husbands, wives, let's pull up a seat at the hostafel. Let's pull up a seat at the house table, the, the code for behavior in a Christian home. Let's strive to make our homes a place where God's word, not the culture, sets the standards. Where God's word creates the pattern 
for our behavior. Now, we don't have time to to continue studying farther into the text, but there is somebody else at the table, and Paul doesn't leave them out. He talks about the children. Let's just read the latter part of this commentary on the home. He says in verse 1 of chapter 6, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And all the parents are glad that I squeezed this last point in. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. It's right. Look at the next verse. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it will go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. I know we've got some young people here, so let me just give you let me just give you a couple things really quick. Number one, you ought to honor and obey your parents because it's right. It's it's not just American. It's not just your family. It's right. It's universally known that when kids disrespect and dishonor their parents, something is socially wrong. In every culture, people expect that. As good as we are, we know we're good at being rebellious and of being disobedient. And as dysfunctional and messed up as our world is, still, in every culture, in every society, it's just assumed that kids are supposed to respect their parents. Why do we feel that way? Because it's right. Because we were created that way. It's the right thing to do. In fact, when, when Paul the Apostle was talking about people that were not right, people that had given themselves over to a depraved mind, in Romans chapter 1, I mean, he talks about things uh, like homosexuality. He talks about um, lesbianism. He talks about all kinds of evil and fornication in Romans chapter 1. And then he says these words. He says, furthermore, verse 28, furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile, to retain the knowledge of God. So God gave them over to their depraved minds so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, he says. He's talking about people that have rebelled against the knowledge of God. Here's these people. They're gossips. They're full of envy. Strife, deceit, slanders, they're God-haters, verse 30 says. They're insolent, they're arrogant and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. Like if it hasn't been done, they find new ways of doing evil. These are bad people. And look at the next one that makes the list. They disobey their parents. They would do that? I mean, right here in this list of all these things that people would do that have rejected the knowledge of God. Students, he says, they disobey their parents. That's not right. It's not right. And and that's why he says clearly in Ephesians 6, he says, children, obey your parents because this is right. It's not only right by natural law, it's right by God's law. And that's why the next verse, Paul then quotes one of the Ten Commandments. He reminds them of what the fifth commandment is. Honor your father and your mother. It's God's command. It's not just your parents' command. It's not just cultural commands. It's going to affect how you live, he says. Honor your father and mother, and it will go well with you. It will actually affect how long you live. It really will. God's health plan, obedience. It's going to affect the way you live. Proverbs 10 says, the fear of the Lord adds length to your life. 
but the years of the wicked are cut short. I've been to a few funerals for young people. They're the hardest ones. Sometimes it's an unforeseen accident, but most of the ones I've been to, my experience, has been bad choices. Life that was cut short because they chose a path of disobedience. Whether it was drugs or alcohol. At some point early on, they chose not to listen to their parents. And their life was cut short. But it doesn't just say honor. And we'll end with this. Or it doesn't say just obey your parents. It says obey and honor your parents. Kids, listen. Young people, listen. Don't be like the little boy who the teacher told to go sit in the corner because he was acting up. And as he's walking over to sit in the corner, he says, I'll sit down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. That's the difference in obedience and honor. Obedience just does what you have to do. Fine. Take out the trash. Fine. Slam the door. You did it. Good for you. You obeyed. That's not honor. Honor is, is esteeming your parents. Honor is, is, is knowing. Oh, man, they're going to be home in 10 minutes, and they're going to ask me to take that trash out. And then not sitting there and waiting for the whole thing to play out like you know it's going to play out. They come in. Could you take the trash out? Oh, yeah. Okay. No, honor is getting up and doing it. You know, there's going to come a day where, where kids outgrow the demand of obedience to their parents. I don't have to obey my parents. But you never outgrow honor. You never, get, you never get past that. You never get to the place where it's not important that we honor our father and mother. And the promise is this, it's going to go well with you. Because if you haven't figured out how to do it in the home, if you don't know how to respect the people that are putting food on your table and taking care of you, people that brought you into this world... How do you think you're going to get along with that boss when you get your first job? Or that tough uh, college professor that's putting the demand on you? How are you going to cope with that if you didn't figure out the early stages, the fundamental building blocks of being able to just obey those in authority over you? How are you going to handle life when it comes at you and, and you struggle to have to submit yourself to somebody else's authority? No, that's, that's the kid that says, forget you, I don't need this job. And then six months later, forget you, I don't need this job. And then six months later, he can't figure out why he can't get a job. He didn't learn honor. He didn't learn how to submit to authority. God's word is, is practical for us in our homes. The Bible tells us that there's a, a standard. There's a table. There's a measure of how we behave together. And I just want to, I want to challenge you as we end this service this morning. And I know that there's all kinds of different family dynamics here. And not all of this uh, totally fleshes out in everyone's life here today. But I hope that it will challenge you to know this. That the Bible, the Word of God, speaks to my behavior. Speaks to my relationships. Speaks to how I interact with other people. Especially my own family. And while we have to be committed to building the church, the table that we serve the bread of life from, we also have to be equally focused on understanding how we function at the 
house table. How we function with each other. I have to understand the incredible responsibility that God has given me as a father to love my wife the way that Christ loved the church. To be, to be willing to die for her. To serve sacrificially. To see her with sanctified eyes. Not critical, not judgmental, but as radiant and beautiful and spotless. To be able to say that she is worth more than a thousand rubies and, and I have everything I need. I lack nothing. You folks, you could all turn your back on me. You could kick me out next week. If she goes with me, I'm good. I'll make it. But if she leaves me, sorry guys, you're just not good enough. You won't feel that need. I'm empty. We ought to feel that way. A good friend of mine, he's a retired pastor now, but he used to always say, if my wife ever leaves me, I told her, I'm going with you. <laughs> God, God, wants, God wants your home to be a place of peace. Not contention, not fighting, not striving. And, and the key is this. It doesn't matter if you're husband, wife, child today, maybe even a single adult. The key is that we come to the table full of the Spirit. That it's Christ in us. That He works in me. This is not a five-step thing to fix your marriage. You're not going to go home and all of a sudden just look at her with sanctified eyes and pretend you don't see all the stuff that she irritated the fire out of you about yesterday. You can't do that. I can't either. It's the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that washes me again and reminds me that God's not holding my sin over me. He accepted my worship today, so who am I to hold this over her head for another day? It's the Spirit that works in us. It's the Spirit that works in our kids. And so I want to challenge you as you come to the table with your family this week and, and throughout this month that we, that we consecrate ourselves and our time to the Lord. Now, I wrote a couple things down. I, I, I want to just challenge you to do something this week. Maybe you want to write these down. Here's something you can do this month for our table series. We've got three more weeks at the table. We're going to be talking about some different things. But here's something you can do with your family. And please, I really want to encourage you to, to step out and to, to do this. Try it. Activate this word today. Do something with it. Number one, just three things. Number one, pray before every meal. Can you do that? Pray before every meal. That's something I want to challenge every one of you to do. And let me say this, not just by yourself, but here's, here's the real challenge. And for some of you, like, this is going to be a challenge before you can even do the three things that I'm about to tell you to do. Here's what I want to challenge all of us to do. Share a meal with your family three times a week. Three times in a week. Make it a priority. Now, for some of you, you're like, we do that every day. That's not a big deal for us. But for some of you, you've gotten out of the routine. And you, you, don't ever, you don't ever sit down. I read a statistic this week that says the average father in America spends 37 seconds a day with his kids. Out the door for work when they get up for school. Coming home late when they're getting back in bed. That's astounding to me. 37 seconds. Our time is so valuable. What we do at this table is going to have eternal significance. So I want to challenge you. For this month, 
just try it as a spiritual exercise. We're going to eat together three times a week. Now, when you do that, I believe you can do it. It doesn't have to be at home at your table. It might be out there. You know what? I ain't got time to cook for these kids. Okay, well, you know, do McDonald's. That's okay. Just get together around the table three times a week. And when you do, here's the three challenges. Number one, pray before every meal. Pray. Pray for your family. You're the priest of your home. The Bible says we are a royal priesthood. And the priest had the responsibility of bringing the people before the Lord. That's what you do as a parent. Bring them before the Lord. Pray for your family. I love to let my kids pray because we teach them how to pray. And so a lot of times, hands, you know, it's okay, let's pray. I'm going to pray. And now they don't even ask. They just, they just start. Like, if I can start, then everybody knows that I get to pray. And so sometimes I have to kind of let them do that, and then I have to stop, and I have to coach the irreverence out of them <laughs> and then remind them this is not actually a contest. Uh, were you actually talking to God, or were you just trying to beat your sister? Like, you know, and it's fine. I, I love that they love to pray, but I also have to recognize as a dad that this is a moment that we can all pray together. And so sometimes after they pray, they go, oh, you know, I, I want to pray. I want to pray. And let's not just let it be, you know, there's the bread, there's the meat, God's neat, let's eat. Like, let's actually talk to God together. Let's talk to Him together. Let's pray. So do that and eat three meals together every week. And then the third thing is this. Remove distractions. Turn off all electronics so that you don't shortcut and circumvent the whole process of praying for every meal of meeting and praying with your uh, family at the table three times a week then turn off the distractions tell them no, no cell phones here guys no cell phones at the table turn off the turn off the tv turn off the game whatever it is shut it off and actually have meal time actually have meal time with your family i want to challenge you that's something that we can do We can challenge that, and we can let our table, our home, be a place where our code of behavior is determined by the Bible and not the culture, where our marriages and our families honor God. I want to pray for you. Father God, I thank you for...